Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the Word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. The scripture reading for today comes from the book of 1 John, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by the Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Steve. Morning, church. Good to see you all today. We are in a series entitled The Work of the People, How Our Worship Forms Our Faith. And each week we're taking one element of our Sunday service and we're looking at how that element, when practiced together week after week, month after month, year after year, contributes to our formation into Christ-likeness. And so this morning, we are looking at one of the most important practices, if not the most important, for becoming people who look like Jesus. And that's the practice of confessing our sins. Confessing our sins. So if we aren't regularly confessing our sins, then our spiritual growth is going to be stunted which is why every single week when we gather here for worship, we spend time in confession. And so our text today is from the book of 1 John, which is a letter written by the Apostle John when he was an old man. Likely at the time of this writing, he was one of the last people who was still alive who knew Jesus uh, personally when he was on earth. And now John is, as an old man, pastoring a network of house churches in Ephesus. And from what we can gather, there's been some major conflict, major disagreement among the church body, and a bunch of people have left the church. And so John is writing to those who have stayed um, a letter of encouragement. And so apparently one of the theological issues that had divided the church had to do with the questions of sin and forgiveness. And it seems that some of the folks who had left the church didn't like being told that they were sinful and needed to confess their sins. And so John is writing uh, to address some of that controversy. So he begins in verse 5 saying, This message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And so John begins with 
this metaphor, you could say, of light and darkness. Light to represent righteousness, darkness to represent sin. And he starts by talking about God. God is the one who has revealed himself to us in Jesus. And he is complete light, complete righteousness, complete purity. And in him, there's no darkness at all. So that's who God is. God is light. And if that's who God is, then John basically goes on to say, so there's two kinds of people in the world. There's those who walk in the light and those who walk in the darkness. In verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us. That line was originally written by the Apostle John, not DC Talk, if you uh, remember (laughs) the 90s. So there's two kinds of people in the world, those who walk in the light and those who walk in the darkness. And he says those who walk in the light are the ones who have fellowship with God. The word fellowship is the word koinonia, and it basically means the deepest, most intimate, most authentic kind of personal relationship. It's the word where we get the word communion, that experience of a secure, joyful, life-giving oneness with God. And so if God is light... Uh, Anyone who walks in the light has fellowship, has communion with him and with each other. And uh, this is the life that we were made for. This is the life that we long for, a life of restored relationship with God and with one another. That's those who walk in the light. And then he says those who walk in the darkness, they may say that they have fellowship with God, but they're actually lying, and the relationship with God and others is just a facade. Um, They may look good on the outside, but the truth is that they're living in darkness. So there are those who are living in light and enjoying deep, authentic fellowship with God and others. And then there are those who are living in darkness and they're living a lie. So here's the question. What's the difference between the two? Their lives, he says, may look the same on the outside, But inside, one person's walking in light, the other in dark. So what's the difference? I think for many of us, the assumption that we would bring to a text like this or a question like this is that obviously those who walk in the light are those who are living good, moral, upright Christian lives. They're doing all the good Christian things. And then those who live in the darkness are those that are living lives of sin and rebellion and disobedience. Essentially, we would assume that People who are living right are in the light, and people who are living wrong are in the darkness. That's not actually what John says here. What's the difference between those in the light and those in the dark? Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So pay attention here. Walking in the darkness doesn't mean that you have sin in your life. It means you're pretending that you don't. It's not your sin that causes darkness. It's your denial of your sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So what does it mean to walk in the light then? Does it mean to live a pure and holy and decent Christian life where we never sin? No. If walking in the darkness is hiding our sin and pretending that we're without sin, 
then walking in the light is the opposite. It's confessing our sin. It's acknowledging our sin, being honest with God and ourselves and each other about our sins. That's walking in the light. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. So to live in the darkness is to live a lie, to hide your sin, but to live in the light is to tell the truth and to confess your sin. So this is why every single Sunday when we gather here for worship, we spend time confessing our sin together. We pray this prayer of confession, the one we're using in this season is from uh, the Book of Common Prayer. But we pray it corporately and then we take some time to confess our individual sins to God. Because if the way to enjoy light and true fellowship with God and with each other is by confessing our sins, then this is one of the most important things we do each Sunday. In fact, I might even argue that confessing our sins is one of the most Christian things we can do, period. In a couple weeks, it'll be uh, Halloween, which was actually originally a Christian holiday known as All Hallows' Eve, when the church remembered those who had died, um, specifically those who had been martyred for the gospel. Um, but October 31st is also a, an important day in church history for another reason. It's the day that in 1517, a German monk named Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door and essentially launched the Protestant Reformation. And so October 31st is when lots of Christians around the world celebrate Reformation Day. Here's the first of Martin Luther's 95 theses. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent... He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Confessing our sins is one of the most Christian things we can do. Why? Well, because what does it mean to confess? To confess is simply to tell the truth. It's to acknowledge the way things actually are. And so that's why John says that those who confess their sins are walking in the light. What does light do? When you turn on the light in a dark room, it doesn't create anything. It simply reveals and exposes what's actually there. The light exposes truth. And so those who are walking in the light are the ones who are being honest with themselves and with God and with others. The truth about the way things actually are, the way I actually am. And so, confessing our sin, admitting that we were wrong, owning our mistakes, acknowledging our faults and failures, these are among the most Christian things we can do. Which is why confession, I think, is one of the most countercultural practices that a follower of Jesus can live by. Because we have current popular conceptions of identity and self that aren't real big on the confession of sin. The idea that there's some God-given standard that I'm falling short of and not living up to. That's not a popular idea at the moment because it assumes that I don't get to determine my own identity and morality. So to confess our sins is a big deal. But even on a more like basic everyday life level, there's all kinds of places where we are taught by culture not to confess our sin. 
For example, when you get in a car accident, what's the first thing your insurance agent tells you not to do? <laughs> Don't admit fault. For many of you, you may have a job where you have to carefully document everything you do in order to protect the company and prove that you're not at fault. Some of you may deal in business settings where you have to make sure that you never apologize because that would be admitting that you may not have held up your end of the deal. Or whatever it is, all that stuff is what it is, and it's easy to take that mentality and apply it to other places in our lives, in other relationships, or even in our homes. So for example, in our marriages or in our families, how often do we find ourselves arguing about who's right and who's wrong, whose fault it was or whose fault it wasn't? In our discussions or our debates, online or in real life, how often are we willing to admit that maybe there was a flaw in our logic that, or maybe that we misspoke? In our lives as the church, how often do we feel like we need to pretend that we have it all together so no one will find out what's really going on with us? So we are, in ways we don't even recognize, constantly indoctrinated by the culture to keep the receipts, so to speak, of all the ways that we are right and others are wrong. And that may be the way of the world, but it's not the way of Jesus. To walk in the light as he is in the light is to live a well-examined life. And it's to tell the truth by admitting when we're wrong. To own our mistakes, to acknowledge our faults, to confess our sins. And so we practice confessing our sins together every Sunday so that we will be better prepared to do it Monday through Saturday. Not a one and done kind of thing, but a way of living before God and before the world. And guess what? If this is supposed to be a seven-day-a-week thing, if you're anything like me, you're going to get lots of chances to practice your faith every single week with your spouse, with your kids, with your friends, with your coworkers. And it starts to kind of change the way you see some of these things. Like, what if whatever it means to be a spiritual leader in your marriage what if that looked like always being the first to admit that you were wrong? The first to repent? What if Christians were the ones that were known for being able to say, you know what, that's a good point. I think I might have been wrong about that. What if the church practiced what we preached and confessed our sins instead of covered them up? What if Christians, in the words of Tony Campolo, were known for loving the sinner and hating our own sin. So that, I hope you can see, is why we confess our sins together every Sunday. Because when Jesus calls us to repent, he wills our entire life to be one of repentance. And that's why it's crucial we become the kind of people who are committed to confessing our sins as a way of life. Because if we don't, we're living a lie and the truth is not in us. So that's the basics. What I want to do next is give you some advanced steps. Because we want to be really, really good at this. 
As Christians, we want to master the art of confession. And so I want to share with you three biblical ideas that I think you could think of as advanced steps or advanced modes of confession for those who are really serious about learning how to do this well. And each of these three modes has two sides to it. And so we're going to walk through each of them. Here's the first. We confess sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission are when you do the things that God has commanded you not to do. Sins of omission is when you don't do the things that God has commanded you to do. So this is why, if you pay attention, in our confession prayer every week, we start by saying this, and let's say this together. God of mercy, we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. We'll stop there. So what are you confessing right now? You're confessing both your sins of commission, what you have done, and your sins of omission, what you have left undone. So several years ago, I was at a pastor's conference, and I was sharing a room with another guy from a different Christian tradition, and one night we were up talking, and he told me, that, he told me something that I've never heard anybody say before, and he said that he uh, doesn't sin anymore. And in fact, he said that he hadn't sinned in over 30 years. And I'm like, <laughs> I rarely go 30 seconds without a sin, so please tell me more. In fact, I think I sinned right when you told me that. Um, <laughs> so I start kind of asking him some questions to try to figure out what he's talking about, and it turns out that he has a pretty narrow definition of sin, right? He has a short list of things that he used to do that he doesn't do anymore, and um, so he no longer sins, which is great. Um, the problem with claiming you haven't sinned in 30 years is that you have to include both sins of commission and omission, right? Um, so maybe you haven't committed certain sins that you used to, but what about the things you've omitted? Um, so if you're wondering how to identify the sins of omission in your life, here's what I would suggest. Start with the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says this is the greatest commandment. It's the most important thing to him about his followers. And so if we want to pay attention not just to our sins of commission, but our sins of omission, well, what's the next line in our prayer of confession? It goes like this. Pray this or say this with me. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. What are we doing? Not just listing the ways that we, or the things that we have done, but we're acknowledging the reality but there's so much we haven't done. And to claim that you are without sin or that you, is to claim that you have perfectly kept the first and second commandments. <clears throat> to say that there is no possible way I could love God anymore or love my neighbors any better. Um, this is the kind of awareness that the spirit of Jesus is wanting to cultivate in his people. So sometimes people ask me, do you think it's possible in this lifetime for a Christian to get to a point 
of sinlessness. And I've said, even if it were possible, we would never know we had made it. Because that would mean we would have to acknowledge every single prompting of the Holy Spirit, every single part of our life that has yet to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so what you'll notice is that as you grow in the art of confession, you'll find the Spirit of Jesus convicting you, not just for the things you've done, but for the things you've left undone. That missed opportunity to deny yourself, to bless your enemy, to be generous, to serve someone in need. I'm talking about real time as we go through our lives throughout the week. The gentle conviction of the Spirit that leads us to repentance to say, God, I'm so sorry, I missed that opportunity to love that person well. Would you forgive me? Help me to do better next time. So, we confess sins of commission and omission. That's our first advanced step. Next, this is a tricky one. We confess individually and corporately. When I use the word corporate in a church setting, I'm not using it the way we use it in the business world. Talk about corporate America or corporations or something like that. We're using it in a more literal definition. Corporate refers to the body. So a corpse is a body, corpus Christi is the body of Christ. When we talk about corporate prayer or corporate worship or corporate confession, we're talking about those things that we do together as members of the body of Christ. We are his body, and so we do things and exist corporately. You could say collectively or communally even. So when we confess our sins here on Sundays, we not only confess our individual sins, but we also confess our corporate, collective, communal sins. And this is a tough idea for a lot of American Christians in particular, because we tend to have such an individualistic view of the world and of our approach to faith. But all throughout the Bible, what you find is that God deals not just with individual persons, but he deals with communities of people. Sometimes families, sometimes nations, sometimes all of humanity in one. And so when we pray our prayer of confession here on Sunday mornings, we pray, you may have noticed, in the first person, plural. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. Have mercy on us and forgive us. So corporate confession is an exercise in remembering that sin is not just individualistic. When we corporately confess our sins, we're publicly acknowledging and renouncing all kinds of sin, even the sins that we personally may not have committed. So in corporate confession, we confess that the effects of sin are far deeper in our hearts than what we can see or identify. You see an example of this in the prophets of the Old Testament, several places. We see the prophets pray prayers of confession on behalf of the people. Uh, Daniel is a great example. Daniel is one of the most righteous dudes in the Bible. He was faithful to God when no one else was. But listen to how he prays in Daniel 9. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, 
Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. Do you see what's happening there? An individual who happens to be a righteous person prays that we have sinned and done wrong, even though he personally may not have. Why? Because he belongs to the community of God's people. And he's calling on God to have mercy, not just on him, but on all of them, the whole nation of Israel. And so he is bearing the responsibility and the blessing of the people because he knows that he relates to God, not just individually, but corporately. The covenants of God have always been between God and his people, not God and individuals. So you see this in the Old Testament prophets, but it's not just the Old Testament. In fact, this is how Jesus himself prayed and taught us to pray. As we pray every single week and as we'll uh, address next week in the sermon, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Notice again, Jesus is the one human being who is without sin. Why would he need to ask the forgiveness of God? Well, if he's only praying individually and relating to God individually and thinking of sin and righteousness and salvation individually, then he doesn't need to ask for forgiveness. But if he identifies himself with humanity, so much so that he can pray with us and on our behalf, forgive us our sins, then that's a whole different paradigm. See, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, forgive us our sins, he was teaching us that sin isn't just individual, but it's also structural. And he was teaching us to take responsibility for sins in which we are complicit even if we aren't personally guilty. This is hard. But think about it this way. What is the root cause behind most human suffering in the world today? Is it the specific sins of one individual to another? Of course, that still happens. But most human suffering is the result of systems and structures of sin. The way that the world is set up. And so to confess my sin, not just individually, but corporately, means examining those places in my life where I've contributed to or been complicit in systems of sin. So for example... What if I find out that the shoes that I'm wearing were made with forced human labor? What if I find out that the food I I ate last night came from a factory farm where animals were abused and suffered horrifically? What if I find out that a company that I own stock in is absolutely destroying part of God's creation? When I find out that I'm complicit 
in systems and structures of sin. How am I supposed to keep track of all that? How am I supposed to, everything I wear, everything I buy, everything I eat, like, are you telling me I'm just supposed to go around feeling guilty all the time or being paranoid that maybe I stepped on a bug or what am I supposed to do about these massive sinful systems of which I'm part? What, am I, what do I do with that? Well, the first thing you do is you confess your sins. It's not the only thing you can do. You can do your research, you can find out a little bit more about the products you buy and the companies you support, but we all know that one single person trying a little bit harder isn't gonna solve all the problems of the world. Of course it isn't. So what do we do? We confess our sins. The sins which we are personally guilty of and the sins that we have contributed to and been complicit in. A number of you were around last year during Black History Month when we hosted an evening of lament and learning around the treatment of black and indigenous people in our state's history. There's a reason Bend is 91% white. It's not an accident or coincidence. And so we got together to listen to that story and to lament it, not to solve the problem, but to confess it. So some of us have a really hard time with this, the idea that we might be responsible for the sins who have gone, of those who have gone before us. But what we're missing is that confessing our sin isn't ultimately something we do for God. Ultimately, confession is a gift that he gives us. He allows us to confess our sins, even the ones we don't know about. And so we confess individually, and corporately. Finally, we confess to God and to one another. One more advanced step here. Our sin is first and foremost against God, and so we confess our sins first and foremost to him. But if you truly want to unlock the power of confession in your life, then you have to get serious about confessing your sin to other people. James writes it like this, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. As Protestants, we don't have priests to whom we go for formal confession. Instead, we believe in the priesthood of all believers, meaning Christ invites us to be the kind of community where it's not weird to confess our sins to each other. And for many of us, this will be the role that, uh, that we enjoy in our community groups or our men's and women's groups or our prayer groups or other close Christian relationships we have. But wherever you have it, if you have a place of sin in your life that you just can't overcome and maybe you've confessed it to God a thousand times, if you're really serious about it, confess it to another person. Bonhoeffer says it like this, that a man who confesses his sins in the presence of a brother knows that he is no longer alone with himself. He experiences the presence of God in the reality of the other person. As long as I'm by myself in the confession of my sins, everything remains in the dark. But in the presence of a brother or sister, the sin has been brought into the light. 
Jesus envisions his community as a people where it's not strange to confess our sins to one another. And it's a scary thing to do. It's an awkward thing to do. It's a hard thing to do. Here's what I've learned. Here's a, here's a good first step. Start by confessing the sins of your past. Once you get good at that, then you can start confessing the sins of your present. Again, confession is a gift from God. And so those are some of the advanced steps that I want to give you. And uh, if you're anything like me, you should be able to spend the next 60 or 80 years trying to master this art. Here's the last thing I want to say. And if you've tuned out, <laughs> um, come back for just a moment here. I want to make sure that you know that the true power of confession is not in the act of confession itself. But in the fact that we have a God who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we are going to be the kind of people who are able to admit our faults, own our mistakes, and confess our sins, not just in church settings, but every day, if we're going to be those kind of people that live with that sort of freedom and vulnerability, then we need to know that we're going to be okay. We're going to need to know that somebody's got our back. We're going to need to know that we can be honest about the broken places in our lives, but that we are going to remain secure in our identity, in our belovedness. What we need is an advocate, someone to stand on our behalf, which is exactly what we're told in the next verse in 1 John. My dear children, I write you this, not so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours but also for the sins of the whole world. This Jesus, our advocate, he's the one who has already suffered and died for our sins, even the ones we don't know about. And in the craziest judo move in the history of the world, he has taken sin, our greatest enemy, and he's used its own power against it so that when we sin, instead of pushing us further away from God, it can actually pull us nearer to him. What a gift. So Antioch Church, Christ has died for your sins. And not only yours, but for the sins of the whole world. You are forgiven and free. Amen.